Welcome to the St. Eminence podcast. I'm Ian Beardsell, and this is our second podcast taken from live recordings at the Premier Conference in Winchester. This is a paediatric medical and trauma conference that has been held for the first time this year and who have kindly let us take extracts from all of the talks to publish to you for free as podcasts. In this podcast, Dr. Steve Warren, a paediatrician from the Queen Alexandra Hospital in Portsmouth, talks about that very tricky subject, both in adults and in children, of non-epileptiform seizures. He gives some really good tips and hints on how to spot which seizures may or may not be epileptic in nature and how you can think about managing those when you've decided that actually they aren't needing treatment for epilepsy. It's really worth a listen. I hope you enjoy it. We've got 15 minutes to talk about non-epileptic events in EDs and how to manage them. So really, is this a problem? It said that about 10% of paediatric referrals to neurology clinics have a functional neurological disorder when they get to a paediatric neurologist and 20% in tertiary epilepsy clinics, so people who are sent for a diagnosis of epilepsy probably don't have epilepsy and have functional disorders. And I think we all know the post-COVID tick epidemic that's spreading across the nation and worldwide are parts of this sort of functional neurological disorder. I thought I'd just start with some definitions. As always, we use many different terms uh, for non-epileptic events. Dissociative seizures is really common. I put bold there, psychogenic non-epileptic seizures, and I think that's going to become the international term that a lot of people are using just because the translation of dissociative into Portuguese and Spanish particularly apparently is quite difficult. I put in brackets there non-epileptic psychogenic events because some people still use that. We used to think of pseudo-seizures, and of course this all comes under the umbrella of functional neurological disorders, which are a classification of non-organic disorders. So they're the sorts of things we're talking about, and I'll try and focus mainly on the non-epileptic events, so the movement-type things. But what are we actually talking about? So there's sort of three main categories, really. There are the paroxysmal events, so the things that come on that look like seizures. People think of as seizures, and under there are some of the tics and tic disorders, so the paroxysmal things that come and go. Then there are the motor problems, problems with gait. People come with gait, weakness, dystonic, abnormal posturing, other abnormal movements. And then there's the sensory problems, sort of numbness or lack of function, really. The concerns, what are the concerns? Why do we worry about making this diagnosis or or getting the diagnosis wrong? So for every presentation of something, there's at least one significant differential. For paroxysmal events, they could be epileptic. Cardiac events happen, syncope happens quite a lot. So if we're thinking things are non-epileptic, we have to, do, we have to balance that against the fact that some of these things have significant differentials that we don't want to miss. Motor events, so post-streptococcal, Sydenham's career. Gluc-1 deficiency, glucose transporter deficiency, has a, a kinesiogenic component that people are fairly well to start with, and then as they carry on walking, they suddenly develop dystonic posturing. And that's something we don't want to miss because that's treatable with ketogenic diets and different treatments. Sensory things, people with numbness and weakness, you know, there are real things. Myalgia parasthetica, so as the the cutaneous nerve comes over the iliac crest, if you're wearing tight jeans or obesity, you'll get a numb patch on the outside of your leg where where it innovates. And I've certainly had a patient who worked out that she had that and used that, say she had numb patches all over her body and then burnt that patch and came to hospital. You'd seen the spinal surgeon who was panicking and thought he'd missed something. Actually, she just had myalgia parasthetica and the rest of it wasn't real. She had uh, non-epileptic seizures and numb patches all over her body that didn't fit. So they're the worries, really. They're the things that concern us. 
that we might miss or we might get wrong. And that's really difficult, particularly in ED, when you're seeing people fairly quickly or you've got a short period of time. Misdiagnosis, I said that sort of 10 to 20% of, of children end up in tertiary clinics. When we look across the board, about 39, up to 39%, it's about a third in the UK, of people who are diagnosed with epilepsy are actually having non-epileptic psychogenic events and functional problems. And remember, we've got a confirmation bias. We all like to be inclusive. We all like to be along with the patients who think they've got something wrong with them. They think they've got an epilepsy and we all like to join in with that and agree with them. So there is a definite confirmation bias that we all have. We all over-diagnose. The other problem is, of course, that these non-epileptic things coexist with organic problems. One of the commonest groups of people I see with non-epileptic events are those who have an epilepsy as well. And in a large group, Riley looked at 27 children who got to video EEG. There were 75 events. 18 of those had psychogenic non-epileptic seizures alone, but nine of them both had epileptic and non-epileptic seizures. And they could be really difficult in someone who has an epilepsy and keeps presenting. And it could be really hard to go back and say, well, exactly what's happening and compare the two things. And quite often, video e we use video EEG. I suspect the commonest use of video EEG is to try and exclude an epilepsy or to prove that the, the episodes are non-epileptic. So they do exist. So they're all worries for us. What do we do? A lot of this is based on history. And the history of this boy was that he becomes suddenly vacant. He then becomes unconscious and then has rhythmic forelimb jerking was the, was the, was the description. And so he's put into my clinic. And what we generally do is we write to people, email them, our epilepsy and specialists will email people out or talk to them, and we ask for video. You can't tell whether he's alert, he's actually uh, awake. If you, if you try and respond, uh, try and interact with him, he will sort of move or look around occasionally to see if people are watching him. And that's not really rhythmic. That's clearly non-epileptic. And just seeing that video is really useful because we can make the diagnosis. And then we go and ask more of the history and find out this is only happening at school. You can see that that's at school. His mum's never seen one of these. He's having lots of these at school. And they're not all the same. Some of them are different. Sometimes he just goes a bit vacant and a bit blank. And sometimes he could be awake and, and jerking. One of the rules, of, I, I suppose, is that you can't have a, an epileptic seizure and, and have seizure activity on both sides of your body. So you can't jerk on both sides and be awake at the same time with a generalised seizure. So if he's conscious, it's not that. And they're clearly non-epileptic movements. Okay. Watch their gait when they're not examined. Okay. We were just, we were just chatting beforehand about uh, somebody trying to video their child secretly so the child didn't know, so they weren't putting it on. I always go out and watch people walk in. Get them to pick something up off the floor. Most people with anything neurological will have difficulty picking something up off the floor, be it a, sensor, a real sensory problem, a real motor problem, or a gait or a coordination problem. If they have to get down and get back up again off the floor, that's normally a, a quite a good standard test that there's, that there's unlikely to be anything. Distraction. Uh, we have a lot of people with visual problems who can't see very well, and they sit there texting their mates on their phone, uh, and their text size is a lot smaller than it is on my phone, and they can see. Okay, and we, the, there's also things, so the big Snellen charts that you have on the wall, the small little A4 versions of that, and it's not uncommon that someone can't read the big one on the, on the wall, but you give them the handheld chart, you don't tell them that it's the same scale, it's just different because it's smaller, and they go, I can read that because it's nearer. Okay, so there's lots of distraction things that you can do to try and find out whether things are persistent and real. Are there any clues to look for? Retained awareness, as I said, if people are aware and having generalised bilateral movements, particularly ticks, are really complex motor movements that don't really fit neurologically and often affect both sides of the body. So if they have retained awareness and they've got generalized activity, then that's unlikely to be anything. Is it the same each time? Okay, Non-epileptic events are often different each time. 
Are there any associations with that? That was only at school. Mum had never seen it. This girl had an association that this happened when she had a tantrum or she hurt herself. In fact, you see the tonic posturing that comes round. It's very brief. She'd fallen down and then her mum went to her and she starts to respond quite quickly. That's a really classical reflex anoxic episode. And that happened with tantrums or she would breath hold or if she hurt herself. And then she'll come back round very quickly. If the neurology doesn't fit, if it's not dermatomal, if that's what you're expecting, if, it's, if it affects different bits, as I said, if it's right arm, left leg, or it's both sides and they're awake, if it doesn't fit neurology, and if their absences are they blank, so absent seizures are very short, 10 seconds probably, up to 20 will let you away with. If you're a teenager, occasionally you can have an absence that you drift in and out of for about 30 seconds. Okay, any longer than that, if you've got an epileptic type seizure that's going on for more than 30 seconds, it's really, really unusual that that hasn't progressed and you start doing motor things or other things. So to have an absence longer than 20 seconds is really unlikely to be epileptic at all. This girl came into hospital last week doing this where she'd suddenly develop dystonic posturing, okay? Hopefully you can just see her legs at the bottom, that her toes are pointed, her legs crisscross, and actually she puts her hands in between her legs as well. And she was doing this repeatedly. She was in hospital, uh, she was booked for an MRI and an EEG, and somebody said, would I go and see her? And they sent me this video, and I said, don't do anything. This is all stimulatory. It was waking her up at night, and that was a worry. So I don't think this is self-gratification behavior, because I think it was irritation. Okay, so my first thing, what tests would I do? I asked for a urine and see whether she should treat her for worms. Because <clears throat> I suspect she's got threadworms because she's waking up at night and she's rubbing. But that scissoring, that posture where she's got dystonic posturing, where her legs cross over into the midline, is really unusual and is not generally neurological. And remember, complex motor features for ticks. So there are all the clues that you can use um, to suggest things. Okay. Red flags, I said at the beginning, we don't want to miss important diagnoses. Do they happen with exercise? Are there any positive neurological signs? Is this un completely unpredictable? Does it happen at really odd times? Does it happen at night when kids are asleep? Are there any other patterns? This is a girl that um, I, I saw recently with syncope, really typical syncope. So she had the blackness of her vision came in. Uh, she felt lightheaded, like she was on a boat swaying. And remember, dizziness can be sort of lightheaded, head rush, swaying, whatever people say, or it can be vertiginous spinning. Okay, so if they're not spinning, they feel lightheaded. They need to, you need to know the difference. If it is just this sort of lightheaded head rush, whatever they describe, and then their vision goes in, and then she'd collapse on the floor with syncope. And I said, okay, this is syncope. When does it happen? And her mum says, absolutely no trigger at all. She could be sitting down, she'd just bang, hit the floor. She'd go really pale, she'll hit the floor, and there's no trigger. She could be walking along, and there's no trigger. So I put her on a 24-hour ECG, did an ECG, which is normal, put her on a 24-hour ECG, in the QA, she got into main reception and collapsed and they put out an arrest call. So they took her back upstairs, got the 24-hour ECG, and that, I think, is about a nine-second pause. And she did this, she had about four of these, and she collapses with each one. So syncope is really common, okay? She was eight, so it's a bit young because it's often in teenagers, and age is a really good thing. All these non-epileptic and, and collapsed things under the age of about 10 are less common. They do happen, they're happening more. But this was syncope without trigger at all, and that's a clue. So if the triggers, if it's very typical, when they stand up, have they got other symptoms? So there's some of the red flags not to miss. How do we manage these? And I think they can be really difficult because um, people come and they come to ED and they come to see you for an answer and they want sorting and they want an answer by the time they go out. I think don't suggest an organic diagnosis if you don't think there is one. Okay, I get a lot of people that come and they say, somebody told me I needed a scan and an EEG because I've got epilepsy. And I go, well, you haven't and you don't. You're allowed to leave some ambiguity. I don't know is a really good thing to say. There's always time. Epileptic seizures, 
are not necessarily dangerous things if they don't go on too long. Ring an ambulance if it's five minutes. That's our advice. Get a video. Video is the most helpful tool we've got. Okay, you can reassure people. I don't think this is a significant organic diagnosis, and that's really complex. I, if this is a serious diagnosis, but I don't think it's anything really organic that's going to get worse or dangerous or tumor-wise. Be careful with investigations. You can be definitive. These are the investigations we're going to do. No more. Okay, EEG is notoriously difficult. 10% of us in this room will have an abnormal EEG if we all had one today. Um, and dealing with that then can be really difficult. Self-help is, is really useful. Cooth is out there online that we use a lot. Schools have ELSAs and counselling. Okay, they do have them. People will deny it, but they do have them. And then I put CAMS, psychology and paediatrics. They're all really difficult. They're all long-term things, but these children need to go somewhere. This isn't mental health, so CAMS don't want to see it. Psychology in children, certainly around where I am, doesn't really exist. And, and we, we, we haven't got the time or the ability to see these children. So they are often left, but there are self-help groups and there are things that they can do. But I think just suggesting that this isn't an organic diagnosis necessarily. And the very first girl we saw, I got a letter from two weeks ago to say a year later, her tics have all stopped, her non-epileptic seizures have stopped and she's flying again at school because she's taken it on really well. They did have a private psychologist. So just a summary, they're really common. You don't need to be definitive. And I think time is the best management. You've got more time. Thank you.